0: What's up, everyone? Welcome to Death Station Radio. It's me, your boy, Dan Evans. I'm delighted to be joined today by Porek O'Farrell from Anti-Imperialist Action Island. How are you doing, mate? I up, How are you getting on? Yeah, good. Thanks so much for joining. It's always good to have exotic international guests. So, to tell us about Anti-Imperialist Action as an organisation. You know, what, what is it that you guys do? Why, why were you set up?
1: Um, I suppose Anti- Anti-Imperialist Action Ireland, was set up about, um, I think, three or four years ago now. Um, and was set up just as a kind of collective of socialist republicans, mainly based on the east coast. But since we've we've kind of um, we've moved towards the the west coast and, uh, and the six counties, we'd we have a presence in all the major cities in the six counties. But yeah, we were set up about three or four years ago, um, based on a socialist republican basis, um, and by socialist republicanism. Uh, we, we we consider ourselves in the tradition of James Connolly. So James Connolly, I suppose he, back in the 1890s, socialist republicanism probably would have um, came onto the stage through James Connolly's Irish Socialist Republican Party. And um, what it basically was, was uh, James Connolly at the time synthesized uh, Marxism with Irish republicanism at the time and um, how the national question uh, could basically be resolved through uh, class struggle. So we'd come from that tradition. Um, but obviously, socialist so republicanism, way before then, republicanism in Ireland has been the revolutionary tendency, and it always will be the revolutionary tendency, um, as long as the national question hasn't been resolved. And in Ireland, the national question hasn't been resolved, and that's why, um, at the moment, uh, we see the situation now that um, it's, it's obvious that on the streets, it, it, it's, it's still having to uh, still having to be resolved. But republicanism in Ireland, I suppose, if anyone is not too aware of i suppose it goes back to 1798 with the with the united irishmen um being influenced by the uh, french revolutions and the um, american revolutions so these ideas were imported into ireland and um the united irishmen were originally an open uh, organization seeking uh, reform and uh, independence for ireland they were suppressed then and they became a secret organization and they organized an insurrection in, in 1798 and over Irish history I suppose there's always been anti-colonial struggles but from 1798 they would have took on a democratic republican um ethos and republicanism at that time was the most progressive uh, ideology that existed so since then there was a revolution in uh, 1803 by Robert Emmet and those the young Irelanders had an uprising the Fenians again had a uh, attempted uprisings, and of course then 1916, I suppose, the the most famous um, uprising against British rule in Ireland was was organised by um, open military organisations. If if anyone ever reads the 1916 proclamation, you'll hear about the open military organisations, so the Irish Volunteers, uh, the Irish Citizen Army, which was set up by James Connolly in, in 1913, it was a working class army. It was Lenin, actually called it the first Red Army in Europe. And then the secret organizations like the Irish Republican Brotherhood would have, um, would have secretly organized the 1916 Rising. So that would be our ideological um, background. We we'd consider ourselves coming from the socialist republican, obviously, when it was the most progressive ideology for its time. And then socialist republicanism. Up to now, I suppose, throughout the last 100 years, socialist republicanism in a lot of ways, has been the vanguard for the national liberation struggle in Ireland, like even in the lead up to 1916. James Connolly, once the First World War had broken out, James Connolly believed that there needed to be a strike for national liberation in Ireland. He, he was probably, he had the same analysis as Lenin when the Second International had kind of basically reverted international so- chauvinism and uh, reformism. Connolly had the same perspective as Lennon and believed that as soon as the First World War started that there needed to be a strike. The Irish Republicans believed that he was going to strike too soon and that he was because he was agitating for a revolution so openly that he needed to be taken into their sphere. So in that way, socialist republicanism, as you could say, was the kind of vanguard for 1916, and throughout the past hundred years, socialist republicanism has, has always been kind of, I wouldn't say a dominant current within republicanism, as because Irish republicanism is kind of like a broad church, but it's always been the most relevant and the and the most um the most revolutionary current, I suppose.
0: Fantastic overview and like you know a history of Irish republicanism for for those who aren't familiar with it. As you said, Boric, it is kicking off again in in Northern Ireland some of the galaxy brain takes uh, on the you know the British of the British Liberal Commentariat that basically blaming Brexit for ruining the Good Friday Agreement essentially implying that everything was hunky-dory in well in Northern Ireland before before that and well we had a bit of a chat you know before we started recording about the nature of the Good Friday Agreement and how you know the national question hasn't been resolved but the, the, the Good Friday Agreement basically has, you know, sort of pacified everything um, without actually resolving the underlying cause of the, you know, the, the, the problems and conflict in Ireland, which is the British occupation and the division of Ireland. What is happening at the moment in why are the loyalists and what do you think this like signifies? Do you think it signifies a serious like step change?
1: Like I suppose there's a few things on a few historical things I suppose that I might just address or talk about. Like first Was of all. You- the, the, the border in Ireland for a start, like I know when the, the media, the international media as well, they call it the Irish border. Well, to us in Ireland, the border in Ireland is a British border. So the border in Ireland was basically imposed on the Irish people undemocratically. And um, no one voted, no one in Ireland ever voted for the border, whether they were orange or green or Catholic or Protestant or whatever way. So in, in, in Ireland, after the 1916 rising, there was, a, there was a, an election and there was an Irish parliament was, um, was established. And in, in 1919, Dáil Iron was the first uh, parliament. It was 32 county parliament, represented all the people in Ireland. And it, it declared its allegiance to the 1916 Republic, which was declared during the Revolution. So in, in 1920, what the British did was they brought in the Government of Ireland Act, which imposed this border in Ireland, divided the country. So there'd be a six county uh, parliament in Ulster. Ulster's made up of nine counties but they established this nine-county parliament so that unionist Protestants would have a, always have a majority. In it. So they not only divided the country, but they divided a historical province in Ireland also. And they, then they also um, established the southern parliament, which is the 26 counties. So the, the border in Ireland has always been a British border. And obviously, the, the, the struggle in, in Ireland has been for national liberation for eight, 900 years. And since the conquest of Ireland, since the British occupation, normal politics in Ireland has never really developed. So there's never been uh, a natural development of politics like in most European countries. So there was never a kind of uh, successful class struggle or class politics never really developed and um, because the national question had never been uh, settled and because of sectarianism in Ireland had always been promoted by Britain to keep the Irish people divided. So they promoted sectarianism to keep Irish people Protestants, Catholics, kind of fighting amongst themselves, and obviously Ireland was planted by Britain with planters to hold uh, part the parts of Ireland for Britain. So, sectarianism was always being promoted by Britain, and the six county state when it was established was basically promoted, and it was actually called by um, the prime minister of what's what they called Northern Ireland or the six county state. It was actually called the Protestant Parliament for Protestant people. So since partition, since up to the 1960s, um, Catholics were denied opportunities, employment, jobs, and everyone knows about probably the civil rights campaign that happened. So when the civil rights campaign happened, it kind of destabilised the six counties and a war for national liberation began in the early 70s. And again, republicanism has always been about breaking the connection with uh, Britain. And breaking the connection with Britain uh, would also stop sectarianism because sectarianism in Ireland is basically being promoted by Britain. It always has been. And as long as the connection with Britain exists, sectarianism will always exist in Ireland. And that's the, the fundamental um, contradiction or the fundamental... Well, it is the fundamental contradiction in Ireland is that the national question still is yet to be resolved. And partition was kind of introduced in Ireland. It wasn't just to, to, to control the six counties, but it was to control all of Ar- Ireland and all of the, all of the country. And now in 2021, now often it's said that like Ireland is an independent country or the 26 counties is an independent country. But Ireland in 2021 is it's a colony and it's about a semi-colony. So it's a colony in that the six counties are occupied, directly occupied by Britain. And it's upheld by uh, the British army who are in uh, garrisons across the six counties and also uh, protected by paramilitary police and loyalist paramilitaries as well. So that's the that's the, the colony is in the north. But the 26 counties is a semi-colony and it's, it's upheld by a kind of comprador capitalist class, ruling class in the 26 counties. Which, um, which kind of oscillates between British imperialism, EU imperialism, and uh, Amer- uh, US imperialism. And like an example of that recently was a Russian um, plane had been going down the west coast of Ireland. Probably more than likely it was going to Shannon Airport, which is on the west coast, and which has been used by US uh, imperialists in their wars or conquests in the Middle East since the Iraq war. So... Uh, or an RAF plane actually intercepted this Russian plane, and it, it exposed the fact that Irish so-called Irish airspace in the 26 counties is actually controlled by the RAF. So the 26 counties ruling class is 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 basically it's it's a it's a ruling class a comprador class which holds the 26 counties for British imperialism, EU imperialism, and and US imperialism. But what's what's happened since the Good Friday Agreement, I suppose, is. The settlement that was brought in in 1998, the, the question kind of changed. So the leadership, Sinn Féin leadership or the Republican leadership, the, the goalposts were kind of changed. OK, so from ending British rule in Ireland, which would end sectarianism to an internal settlement. So Republicanism has always uh, been opposed to British rule in Ireland and also to what we'd call the unionist veto. OK, so the unionist veto was basically that the six counties are, are what's called Northern Ireland should basically have a veto over the rest of the country because they're only the six counties are less than 20 percent of ireland and ireland is the 32 32 counties so republicanism has always rejected any settlement which um gave Unis a veto okay which is basically as long as the people in the six counties supported the connection with britain that things would stay where they were but republicans rejected that because it's undemocratic because the six counties were drawn up undemocratically so Unis and uh Unionist Protestants would always have a majority there. So, what eventually happened with the Good Friday Agreement was the leadership of the Republican movement, section of the leadership at the time, would have accepted a settlement that um, didn't break the connection with England and made it a, an internal settlement. So, it gave, gave um, Stormont government where Republicans would be represented uh, through electoralism and unionists would be would be um, represented as well. But the, the problem is that the conflict was always about ending British rule in Ireland. And that's the fundamental uh, contradiction in Ireland still is the national question. And it was exposed as well with the COVID pandemic that the north of Ireland and the south of Ireland had different uh, strategies to deal with in, in a small little island, which just didn't make any sense. But since the Good Friday Agreement, so since 1998, what's happened is sectarianism has actually been institutionalised. So parties who enter Stormont actually have to identify themselves as either being nationalist or unionist. And some of the so-called peace walls in in the north, there's actually been more have gone up in the past 20 years than than existed before that. So what is, what's kind of developed in a way is it's kind of like identity politics on um, on steroids that then you have a nationalist community and a unionist community community and they compete for resources against, against each other and politically i suppose they oppose each other in a, in a political sense but the british government who basically control the purse strings they control everything else they they're seen as being a benign influence in ireland where Britain, it, the, the cause of the conflict in Ireland has always been uh, Britain, Britain's uh, in, influence in Ireland and its uh, colonial relationship with Ireland. I don't think that answers your question, but I'll probably get around to it someplace. some <laughs>
0: No, it, it does. And it's, um, it's always been interesting to me that, like, as you said, the internal contradictions of the Good Friday Agreement is essentially a pacification strategy and doesn't deal with, as you said, the underlying... Uh, issue in ireland which is the you know the ongoing occupation of ireland by by the uk and the you know, division of I- the artificial division of ireland we uh, mean you spoke about this but like you know i spent most of my teenage years in like you know irish republican bulletin boards which is probably about the same time just just after the good friday agreement was being um you know written and obviously the at the time it was you know part of this like blair you know blair's like passive revolution He wanted to solve the crisis of the british state and in, in Scotland and Wales, and but obviously the Good Friday Agreement was like the centerpiece of, of of sort of solving everything, um or like in the in the regions, including Ireland. And at the time, I remember people saying, "Well, like this can't, you know, this can't hold because it doesn't address the fundamental underlying problem." Um, but obviously at the time, and even now, you know, anyone, you know, the anti Good Friday Agreement essentially has been taken to mean that you know you're you're a nutter. We had Paul, Paul O'Connell on a few months back, and Paul basically said the crisis of the British state of British capitalism is almost being resolved in some awful ways now. So, like, in the UK, you know, Blairism tried to sort of sort of resolve, resolve this crisis, but it now looks as if the crisis is going to be solved by essentially t- a Tory hegemony for like the next, mm. you know, indefinite in, in future, like, you know, like, the Labour Party has collapsed. Um, it looks like Scotland is going to be independent. So I, I guess, in other words, it looks as if the the, the underlying conditions, which... Of course, everything is seeping through and starting to break break through again. I mean, I don't know whether Brexit is the actual catalyst for what's happening within the loyalist community, but it does look as if some of the tensions are starting to resurface again. I don't know. I mean, how how do you see how do you see it playing out?
1: Not the am defeatist, but I kind of have a we we'd probably have a different, slightly different analysis in that we we kind of yeah. believe that. Um, we think that Britain basically is stronger now than it was since 1970, I think it was 73 when they joined the EU, that politically and militarily they're, they're stronger now than, than they ever were. And again, not to not sound too defeatist, right? Um, like the, normally when the mainstream media starts to give a certain narrative, I kind of instinctively kind of think the opposite. And a lot of the time they kind of pro-EU, pro-Remain um, media were given the, the uh, narrative that Britain was going to fall, fall to pieces, Brexit was going to happen. Scotland was going to pull away and then north does it to be a united Ireland that somehow Britain doesn't have any colonial relationship to Ireland and that uh, it'll just be a natural drift to uh, united Ireland. And we we've kind of we disagree with that analysis. We say Britain's actually stronger now um, than it ever was. Like even, for example, Scotland and like, I'd love to um, see Scotland and Wales become independent. And I hope they do. And I, I'm not going to give a analysis, a huge analysis of Scotland or Wales either, because number one, I don't know enough. And number two, I, I don't live there. But like when it comes to Scotland, like uh, Johnson has, has said that they've had their vote and that basically the result of that referendum is, is going to be used for at least the next generation um, to basically to prove that Scotland wants to remain within the UK. So unless Scotland... Um, Unilateral declares it's going to have its own referendum and then win it. Um, I'm not sure if, if that will happen. And in Ireland, the um people were saying that because of Brexit as well, that because of the six counties, a lot of people voted to remain the EU, that this would naturally um result in people wanting to have a united Ireland. But did the, the mechanism within the Good Friday Agreement for a united Ireland to actually happen? There actually is no mechanism, and it it relies on. Uh, Again, the Unionist veto. So a British Secretary of State has to say that they believe that nationalists might have a minority in the six counties of of, uh, Ireland. And then they'll have to call a border poll. Okay, so there's a lot of talk in the media at the moment that a border poll is going to be a border poll, blah, blah, blah. But number one, there'll never be a border poll in Ireland without the consent of the 26 county state. And the 26 county state is subservient to British imperialism. And the only possible way that might happen would be if Sinn Féin in the 26 counties get into government or get into a coalition. And in order for Sinn Féin to do that, they'll discard any notion of socialism or social democratic principles that they have and um, to get into government in the 26 counties. And again, that just kind of proves another way that the class politics in Ireland can never develop once the national question hasn't been resolved. So in order for that to happen, there'd have to be um, a, a, a an election in the South to get Sinn Féin power. Then in the North, there'd have to be pressure put on to a British Secretary of State. But the British Secretary of State can decide whenever they want to have a border poll when they can. So again, the Irish people are being denied national self-determination in more ways than one. And the British government hold all the cards within this whole process. And even for the likes of a border poll, okay, so anti-imperialist action, we've we've taken a kind of traditional Republican position when it comes to any type of border poll. And that is that, number one, we're against it on principle, because number one, we believe that the right to independence is a right, that you can't put a right, someone's right to a vote. Either rights belong to someone or they don't belong to someone. And also, when it comes to that, Ireland was already declared a republic in 1916, there was an election in 1918, and there was a parliament uh, established in nineteen nineteen and that was destroyed by the by the British and Ireland was divided undemocratically. So we've already had our, our vote when it came to national independence. Um so that they're the kind of two main reasons why we'd oppose a border poll in principle. But also tactically and strategically the, the biggest um, argument at the moment for a border poll and for a successful border poll is demographics. Okay. So the demographics are that there's going to be more Catholics born or more nationalists born than Protestants, and this will this will result in a big increase in uh, nationalists in the north, and then basically we'll will just all outbreed Protestants is basically what uh, what it comes down to. But like if you look at the statistics from 1998 to 2017, the nationalist vote, which is S uh, SDLP and Sinn Fein, has increased by 0.1 percent. So there, there's actually no demographic change that's actually resulting in a nationalist majority in the six counties, and the whole reasons for the six counties. Being drawn, and it's not the, the historic nine counties of Ulster, is that unionists and unionist Protestants will always have a majority in, in the uh, six counties. So, we'd see the kind of the arguments for border border poll as being a diversion from the root cause of the problem, which is British uh, rule in Ireland. And it's only by ending British rule that um, sectarianism uh, can be defeated in Ireland, and basically that the natural law of politics, class politics, can develop in Ireland. So, how do
0: you see? The Good Friday Agreement holding them in the in the near future? If, if well, you think Britain is stronger, do you think that you know, that also means that the GFA will continue to sort of trundle along, sectarianism will remain entrenched?
1: Well, the thing is that the Good Friday Agreement is a British, it's a British agreement. So the, the biggest achievement of the Good Friday Agreement is that the British have, they've um, brought in former republicans who would have opposed any kind of internal settlement and would have opposed british rule they've actually brought this section of the nationalist community republican community in and that they've they've actually said that they're happy enough to um uphold british rule in ireland for the for the for the foreseeable future so like number one the good Friday agreement is a is a document that the british government have a They've drafted themselves and the, the consent of the unionists is a fundamental principle uh, for this. So that's basically all the British uh, government have ever wanted, really. S- since the 1970s, when the, uh, the conflict um, started off again, the, the British had a, a strategy of ultralization and uh, normalization and criminalization, which was it was taken from Frank Kitchen, which he borrowed from Vietnam. And what was happening was there were so many British soldiers being killed in um in the north of Ireland that that was putting pressure on um people in Britain and there was calls then for for um Britain to leave Ireland. So what they wanted to do then was to scale back the British army, militarise the police, and we can see this now in the in the six counties that the police are very militarised. If anyone ever goes to Belfast or Derry or anywhere, you'll see armoured cars, uh, Land Rovers going around the place. The police on the police and unmarked cars have bulletproof windscreen, this kind of thing. So the, the police, the local police, are being put to the front line and that British rule tries to become uh, normalised in, in Ireland and that the Republican struggle, again, tries to become criminalised. Um, and they've kind of been, they've been successful in a certain way in, in doing that over the past while. And that's basically what the Good Friday Agreement was basically all about. It was about an normalisation and criminalisation policy. And again, Britain is just seen as a, like a benign uh, peace peacekeeping force to keep the, uh, t- the paddies from uh, knocking shit out of each
0: other. When you put it like that, the, the colonial element is, is so striking.
1: And that's the thing, it's kind of, um, it's, it's being ignored. And that was one of the kind of reasons why we set up Anti-Imperialist Action was that we had to look at the problem that existed in Ireland. And the problem that exists is that Ireland is about a colony and a semi-colony and that Britain's colonial relationship to Ireland was being ignored and was being deliberately ignored and was being deliberately run down in order for them to strengthen that colonial rule. So one of our roles, I suppose, is to expose the the nature of British imperialism in Ireland and also uh, EU and US imperialism in Ireland. But that's part of the process that they have of normalisation and criminalisation is that they don't want um, a situation where the the state is uh, seen as being abnormal but in a kind of in a contradictory way loyalism at the moment has actually shown what an abnormal society it is and what an abnormal state it is
0: you know the way you've described the 26 counties of ireland you know as existing in this like subordinate relationship to british imperialism you know the eu american imperialism i wanted to speak about that state or the statelet or whatever if, if if that's if that's okay because as we've said you know a lot of people in the welsh independence movement or the welsh nationalist movement particularly in i sort of obsessed with Ireland. The idea of the Celtic tiger has never really worn off in Wales. And a lot of people keep saying, "Oh, well, well, you know, if we become independent, we can be like Ireland. And obviously, you know, I've taken interest in Irish politics. You notice things like the water charges, the levels of homelessness, the housing crisis in Dublin. If you could just talk about, I guess, the, the politics or the social conditions in Ireland and whether people in there, whether it is like the land of milk and honey.
1: I am. Yeah, like the 26 county state was created through a counter revolution. So, as I mentioned before, like the 1916 proclamation was ratified by the first people's doll in 1919. And if a lot of people in Ireland are, are well accustomed to the 1916 proclamation, everyone everyone kind of knows it. But in, in 1919, the the people's doll people's parliament or doll They produced what was called the Democratic Programme, and if anyone has ever read the Democratic Programme, it's actually a very socialistic um, document, and it talks about the – well, 1916 Proclamation is quite a socialistic document as well. It talks about the ownership of of Ireland belonging to the people of Ireland, and it shows Connolly's influence in it, but the Democratic Programme talks about the wealth and all the wealth-producing processes in the country belonging to the people of Ireland. I think um, if you've ever seen uh, The Wind Shakes to Barley, I think one of the Irish Citizen Army volunteers in it quoted, but um, the People's Republic was suppressed by, by Britain, and obviously the civil war happened because a section of the national leadership in Ireland accepted a settlement that was less than the People's Republic uh, recognition for it. And a lot of people might notice, maybe in, in Wales or whatever, but... When the 26 county state was set up, we called it the Free State. So it was the British called it the Free State. It was a 26 county dominion still within the British Empire. When it was set up, it actually executed more Republicans than the British government did. So during the Civil War in Ireland, there was over 77 Republicans were executed. So it it shows. The, the influence that the counter-revolution had and since that counter-revolution in 1922 the right have always been in power in a uh, in ireland and as i said before it's it's been ruled by this kind of comprador class ruling class which predominantly is um influenced by british imperialism but it's also it kind of oscillates between eu and u.s imperialism and like i've mentioned the colonial relationship the 26 counties have the britain at, at the moment that the, the police service, the Garda of Shia Khanna, uh, the, the, the commissioner is the, the head man, is, he's a previous uh, RUC man, MI5 operative, who's now in charge of the police in the 26 counties, but when the when the 26 county state was established, it was a semi-colonial state, com- completely subordinate to Britain, um, and in a lot of ways a lot hasn't happened, it's, it's pursued neoliberal policies um, over the past 40 years, and to say it's independent, this kind of like the the economy is basically ran by foreign financial institutions, um, and one one of those is executed in the 19 1922 uh, during the counter revolution was Liam Mellows. He was a socialist republican. He's probably one of the greatest socialist republicans since James Connolly in Ireland. He argued that the republic, the 30, the republic that they had been fighting for, had to be a people's republic, and that if it wasn't a socialist republic, that the country would just be run by international financial institutions and banks and that the Irish people wouldn't actually have any control over their affairs whatsoever. And that's he's, what he said is being prophetic because that's what we've seen for the past 100 years is basically privatization um, in the interests of international finance uh, capital. And the, the counter-revolution basically has, has, has uh, trundled on for the past for the past 100 years.
0: It's an incredible overview. It always, it always does strike me how, as you say, how prophetic Conley's work is. When you, you know, when you, when you see things like, I think the Irish government, or they beg the European Court to like allow Google to not pay tax or something, um, yeah, yeah something ridiculous, yeah, so you know, yeah. so begging for these corporations to not pay tax so they wouldn't leave, and you're just like, well, they're completely hostage to these these huge corporations.
1: Yeah, yeah, and like as I said about this kind of in the 26 counties like american foreign direct investment in ireland is always being seen as a big thing none of them pay any taxes there's a there's an office in the ifsc in dublin the irish financial services center i think there's 5,000 companies are registered in this one office so ireland is basically it's so they they register in ireland for tax uh, reasons so they don't have to pay any tax so like the 26 counties is basically like a casino for rich and for financial institutions. like we, we bailed out the banks. My grandkids have a debt on them before they're even born, which is paying back these uh, international uh, banks. And I'm paying for the, life, the likes of me and future generations are paying the lifestyles of these former multimillionaires who gambled millions and billions of money, and we're still paying for their lifestyles. Um, and future generations are going to be paying for them as well. So like James Connolly said it again as well, like yeah, we'll free Ireland, but who are we going to free it for?
0: And just like any other you know, neoliberal state, the social conditions seem, you know, as you said, extremely acute and like precarious. You have things in Ireland like water charges, you know, high levels of emigration of young people, you know, homeless, huge homelessness issues in in and around Dublin. From again, from what I've read, and I believe, you know, like things like you know charging for, to see GPs. So it, you know, it doesn't seem. It doesn't seem like it works at all in, for, for, for normal working class people.
1: Yeah, that, and that's the thing about the GPs is just talking to people from Wales or England or Scotland. Like when when you tell them that like the visitor GP, it's a hundred quid, and then there's pres- uh, prescription charges then after that as well or whatever. It kind of blows their mind a small bit. But yeah, as you said, like the, the water charges. The water charges were were brought in after the um, the banks were bailed out. And basically the, the 20 people in the 26 countries were being absolutely hammered with taxes. They tried to bring in a household charge. It was boycotted by the majority of people in the South, but they circumvented it by taking it directly out of their wages. And then they were going to introduce this this uh, water charge. And the water charge movement, a lot of the things I'm saying might sound a bit defeatist, but um, like the water charge um campaign, the water tax campaign, to me, it was, it was a huge political education for me. And looking back on it, it was actually the biggest campaign of civil disobedience in europe during the whole era of austerity Mm. so what happened was they they tried to bring in a, a water tax okay the tax had already been paid the water had already been paid for through general taxation and in a bizarre way people's car tax was actually going towards the upkeep of water but they tried to put on this extra water tax and they were basically going to um have a meter every house in the country would have had a meter so It it kind of it was the last straw for a lot of people, but it also unified a lot of people in that everyone was getting a meter put in outside their house, and it kind of unified a lot of people to come together, um, and to oppose it. And at the start, you had to register to Irish Water, this company that was set up. That was completely boycotted by the people who had registered, and most of the people in the country didn't even register. So that was a huge victory, but also the fact that people were coming out and actually physically blocking water meters being installed across across the country and it was a huge political education for people because it wasn't just an extra tax being forced on people but it was actually the commodification of water and obviously that would have led to the privatization of water so it was a huge um, political um, education for people and it was actually really inspiring to see people who wouldn't have been involved in politics in any way old people coming out and actually ready first of all to stop a private company installing a water meter outside a home. Then the cops would be called and then people standing up to the cops and saying, no, you're not putting the water, you're not stealing their water and, and privatizing their water. It was actually really inspirational. And it was one of the few campaigns that was really successful and sometimes i think uh what's on the left or i suppose involving struggle or whatever we, we don't really claim our victories but that was a huge um huge campaign a huge victory and as i said it was one of the biggest uh campaigns of mass civil disobedience across europe during the during the age of austerity
0: yeah it was incredibly inspiring and i remember you know seeing people sabotage and breaking the water meters it well it was both inspiring and depressing because i remember thinking at the time for all the the, d- the damages done in Ireland by austerity and so on there was still this like tradition of resistance um, and people were coming together and I remember talking to some friends at the time and I said well if I was in Wales you know what would happen is the Labour Party would have probably come in locally and sort of co-opted the protests which like you know just in Wales like they do in the UK like they do everywhere and then it would have been sucked into you know parliamentary means or co-opted the fact that there is this republican tradition of you know standing up for yourselves and, and, t- and taking direct action and, and you know standing up to the police and, and things like that and while the conditions obviously change I do think that's something that is you know to be to be treasured in a way. Um, and and
1: the, the thing the thing is what, about that campaign is, and I've, it's been said to me before that a lot of Irish people kind of have this instinctive or subconscious kind of anti-imperialist or anti-establishment sentiment. But the thing during that campaign was, a lot of people didn't wait for political parties or political movements they just went out and physically stopped water meters themselves and the thing was that they had the courage of their convictions to to stand up for for what they believed in and with that campaign because it was so unified because everyone was getting a water meter put into their house it was it's very easy to stand up for for your for your principles and your convictions and it's even more so easier when there's people standing around you willing to do the same
0: Yeah, you don't need the Socialist Workers Party to like tell everyone to do something,
1: <laughs> which, is, <laughs> and, which is what
2: happens
1: and, in the UK. <laughs> and as you said as well, like the same problems in Ireland exist with um, electoralism and, and elections, how they, they can be demoralising and they can split campaigns and, and that kind of thing. And that was another reason why when we set up Anti-Imperialist Action, we set it up as a mass organisation. So number one, we didn't want to be a political party. Yeah. So f- for, for a number of reasons, during that campaign and other campaigns, But within the kind of activist community or just even within communities, like the term political party to them means instinctively electoralism, electoral political parties and careerists. We wanted to stay away from that, number one, because we weren't that. And number two, also because um, we weren't interested in elections and we have no interest in, in taking part in elections. And we think electoralism basically is a dead end and it actually promotes reformism. Whereas the people we were dealing with for these campaigns, especially the water tax campaign, as I said, some of them weren't involved in everything. Some were in the maddest shit ever, like that. People who call themselves activists wouldn't wouldn't dare get involved with, it. and yet yeah. they'd be talking about revolution on the weekend. But when it actually came down to it, it was ordinary people leading from the front.
0: Yes, such an such an important point about being co-opted. Um, well, we speaking of being co-opted, tell about Sinn Fein and you mentioned uh, former Republicans. What happened in in last year's elections, you know, so the the, the narrative here was, you know, Sinn Fein, you know, nearly got in, nearly got into power, but got stitched up. So what what happened there? But but also talk us through Sinn Fein because obviously on the British left, they're considered to be like an insurgent left party in the style of like Podemos or something or, or Syriza or something like that. But I know, um, obviously, people like Andy McIntyre, you guys have written critiques of of Sinn Fein and and what they like. So just Talk us through what happened in the nature of Sinn Féin, if that's okay, mate.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll try and be as good. I'll just make a uh, point, just um, what I was saying there about um, us being a mass organisation not getting involved in politics. Like we've seen in Ireland, and um, I think it's across probably the Western world, that people, especially working class people, don't vote. A lot of them aren't yeah. registered. We've noticed that in Ireland. As I said, during the water tax campaign, different campaigns, a lot of the activists, the most active activists were people who aren't registered and they have no interest in voting, and like this, um, what kind of seems to be happening is that people aren't registering to vote and they're not voting for kind of two main reasons. One is that they don't think it will change anything. And we'd agree 100% with that. We don't think any kind of fundamental change or change will come from electoralism. Um, and also a lot of the political parties don't represent them, and which which we, we kind of agree with as well. But I suppose um, just the point you're saying there about uh, Sinn Féin last year in the election. Yeah, so... um. Since partition in, in Ireland, in the 26 counties, um, as I said, class politics has never really developed. There's never been a strong Labour Party. There's never been a, a left versus right uh, political binary, I suppose you call it. Um, and even in, in the lead up to uh, the, the civil war, there was often a call that Labour must wait, that the national question was the most important thing and, and class politics had to uh, come secondary or whatever. But since partition in the in the South, OK, so th- there's what we we call civil war politics. So there's been two kind of uh, right of centre political parties, Fianna Fáil and, and, and Fianna Gael, have fought it out similar, I suppose, maybe to America um, with the Democrats and the Republicans. um, And there's never been a strong uh, Labour Party. And that continues to be the case. So there's always been a slightly more Republican or more, um, slightly more uh, Republican or nationalist political party. Um, and then there'd be another nationalist uh, political party. Um, and Sinn Féin is just another, uh, uh, it's just a continuation of, of this uh, trajectory. Um, and just about the elections, I suppose. Yeah, Sinn Fein. It looked like they were going to win the majority. If they had to put up more candidates, they probably, possibly, would have come um, had a more majority to, to form their own uh, coalition or to, to to um to form a, a government. But yeah, there was a there was a first time Fianna Gael and Fianna Fail, two civil war parties, came together with I think it was the Greens, yeah, to form to basically to keep Sinn Fein out is is uh, why they why they came together. But Sinn Fein, yeah, it's it's it it's kind of projects itself in the South as being a social democratic party and it, it's kind of taken a lot of previous Labour uh, voters um, t- taken their votes from working class areas. And the contradiction is is as well that in the South it projects itself as a social democratic party but in the six counties in, in Stormont it's in government with one of the most right-wing parties in Europe the DUP and it imposes austerity with people and their argument for that up in the North is that well, we don't hold the purse strings that it comes from London, it comes from Britain, they release how much funds uh, come towards us and we have to deal with what we get. But they could say the same in the South if they wanted to they could say that the EU hold the purse strings and they control what money they get or whatever, which will probably more than likely happen. But Sinn Féin, will, they'll discard any sort of social democratic or socialist rhetoric they already have to a... To a large degree in the south in order to get into government or to get into coalition government um, and they will go into coalition with ev- anyone they can and, and they'll push for a border poll in the six counties for to have a border poll there and to see if uh, they can pursue I suppose the unity project that way but what's happening the, in the south in the 26 counties at the moment is that all the political parties in Ireland except the units support the United Ireland and want the United Ireland but they agree on on the basis of the Unis consent which is which is uh, undemocratic because it's only a small proportion of the people in Ireland. And the, the the state of itself was drawn up, gerrymandered by Britain. So um all the political parties support North ireland But what's happened now in the 26 counties is a lot of the parties and Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, the, the major established parties, have started to change the goalposts. And they've talked about a shared Ireland. So they haven't explicitly said a united Ireland. They want a, a shared Ireland. And what what that basically means is that there won't be a change in the constitutional uh, position of the six counties or what people call Northern Ireland. It'll stay the way it is, but there'll be more uh, cross-border infrastructure and investment and that kind of thing. And there could possibly be joint sovereignty between... Uh, the 26 counties, and maybe Britain with the North. But the North won't change its constitutional position. And to be honest, the South, the ruling class, don't want to change it. They have a lot of vested in, uh, interests in the way things are at the moment. They don't want to see a change. So Sinn Féin, possibly they said they're going to run more candidates in the next election. Um, and they possibly might get into get into coalition um, in the next election. It could well happen yeah. But I don't think we'll, we'll see uh, too much of a fundamental change from um, the next election anyway.
0: They, they must have energised a section of the population, though. I mean, you said they're peeling off uh, people from the who used to vote Labour. I mean, it did seem like a bit of an insurgent campaign with young people. I, like, I agree, obviously, about the, the nature of Sinn Féin, but how do you explain the sort of explosion in their votes? Because it did seem to come from...
1: Well, there, there's been a... Sinn Féin, have, over the past 20 years, that they've had a steady influence of electoral support. But what they've done is... I wouldn't say so much that they've activated young people into voting. They don't have many activists. It's it's what they're what they're competing for and what they've probably successfully gained is the previous Labour so kind of social democratic voter base. Um, people believe that Sinn Féin would take up the Fianna Fáil vote in the 26 counties and that they'd soak up the kind of Republican Republican elements that previously had remained in Fianna Fáil. But that hasn't happened, and Fianna Fáil have such strong links in Irish society that they'll probably always be a big party. But Sinn Féin have, have kind of gained a social democratic vote that people would have voted Labour. Now they've kind of switched allegiance to, um, to uh, Sinn Féin. Similar in the North, people switched their allegiance from, the SW, the, from the SDLP to Sinn Féin. But Sinn Féin are gaining these votes because they're softening their image. So they're discarding republicanism in the north, but their vote is increasing. And in the south, they discard uh, socialism and their vote increased that way. So even though their vote is increasing and they're getting more electoral support, they're discarding uh, republicanism and they're discarding uh, socialism.
0: One of the th- main things Anti-Perious Action do as an organisation, as you said, is, is to fight the far right and to fight fascism. I mean, there is obviously an island, you know, a physical force tradition of confronting fascism, equally i'd say maybe unusually you know ireland also has a a fascist tradition in the blue shirts what what is the nature of the like the far-right threat at the moment in ireland
1: that's an important point to make as well that, that there is a tradition of um fascism in ireland as you said with the blue shirts um and the fact that the right have always have been in power in the 26 counties for 100 guts of 100 years but they have tried to use fascism in order to um just to, to strengthen their position and fascism in ireland basically in a, in a nutshell objectively it serves british imperialism and even if you see nowadays the kind of most recent incarnation of fascism in ireland the kind of uh main groups or main organizers one is grand torino or as he's known in ireland tan torino um rowan croft who's a ex-british soldier he's he's a this kind of online journalist type person And this kind of personality who's been promoting a lot of kind of um, far-right theories and uh, basic racism. Another kind of journalist type person is Gemma O'Doherty. She actually used to be um, an investigative journalist and she started to turn to the extreme, extreme right by 2017, 2018. She's invited people over from the English Democrats and one uh, spoke at one of her protests, one of her so-called free speech protests outside Google um he was a member of the Orange Order. There's a uh, Niall McConnell in Donegal has organized this group called Shield and the the Seed of Ireland, who are funded and set up by Jim Dawson, a uh, Scottish loyalist banker who used to fund the BNP in uh, England. So objectively, all these groups serve British imperialism. And the other group was the National Party, um, whose objective is uh, basically the ethnic cleansing of uh, Muslims and uh, Protestants from uh, Ireland which means they'll never have a you know Ireland but at least they they sound like they have ambition anyway. Looking at
0: some of the you know like the yellow vest the anti-lockdown protests I think probably on your 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 guys social media is interesting and then some of the analysis was fantastic I thought that it is a bit of a it's a real like hush of of groups coming together you know people using like the Irish language alt-right talking points conspiracy theories like an unusual mixture. Yeah
1: and that's um for for a while especially with the lockdown protests i suppose one of the biggest um events i suppose um not necessarily organized by the far right but that they were able to use were cover were kind of anti-lockdown uh, protests and kind of anti-pedophile protests that they were able to use as cover because the far right in ireland can't organize public events and they've kind of accepted that they've retreated from the streets from any kind of street activity and it looks like they're they'll probably concentrate on um electoral politics which is in one way is great that they've recognized that they've been defeated on the streets but it's also it's another possibly more difficult problem is uh, dealing with community politics and i suppose winning the hearts and minds of people and winning them away from some of these arguments that they've um, been promoting but they they, in some ways they've been smart that they've used the anti-lockdown protests in in the 26 counties there was a big uh, uh, controversy what, what was called golf gate it was when the restrictions had been brought in um, a lot of politicians and um kind of people of influence had gathered for a, a big dinner and a and a course of golf. And I think it was somewhere over in the west, and people were rightly uh incensed about it. But the uh, the far right yellow vests, particularly who kind of have been used as a kind of umbrella organisations, um who provided a uh, cover and um left kind of far right people speak at their events and that kind of thing. They organised an anti. Uh, lockdown protest, which got a fairly big a uh, fairly big crowd but again it was kind of tapping into people's genuine anger about mm-hmm. how they were being treated by the, by the establishment but apart from that yeah a lot of a lot of the other kind of activists some of them would, would have some crazy ideas like QAnon had a had quite a number of people out for a while um, and then just different theories like a lot of anti-vax stuff have uh, come to the fore but I guess the lockdown people sitting inside people who have like genuine grievances they see something with a simple message and and they can kind of they can kind of um get behind it and i suppose it's the role of anti fascists and and socialist republicans to kind of direct their their anger their their, the genuine anger that they have and directed against the establishment and the people that have have put them into the economic and socio-economic situations that we're all in at the moment
0: it's interesting to think about different political culture ireland does does have a a, a history of fascism and through the blue shirts but equally it has an extremely strong tradition of anti-fascist uh, socialist republicanism which, like you know used to happen in the ira like physically confronting the blue shirts and you see that you know in some of the videos that you guys have, have put out of the uh, an absolute intolerance of fascism and uh, physically confronting them you know me and you have spoken about know, the fact that you know red action in the uk most of the most effective anti-fascist organizing actually was done by Irish Republicans or people from the Irish Republican tradition living in the UK. Now, obviously, the British left and in Wales, it's it's a weakest it's it's probably ever been, I would say. And in Wales, you know, there have been far right are definitely on the march, and there isn't a tradition here anymore, or or the tradition of physically confronting fascists sort of as ebbed away. What lessons can we learn then from you know from Ireland?
1: I can only speak from the Irish um, experience, and like as I said, like the the um the role of anti-fascism in Ireland we see it as a plank of we see anti-fascism as part of the struggle for national liberation and as part of the society that we want to create and um, that it's not just about ending British rule in Ireland and it's not just about ending imperialism we want to create a, a genuine socialist uh, republic so in in that way the the, the the narrative and its reality as well is that a lot of these so-called patriot groups like the word patriot even is is borrowed from America and the far right in America and they, they call themselves Irish nationalists yeah a lot of these people are of the age where when there was a raging conflict in Ireland when there was foreign troops on on Irish soil that a lot of these people were nowhere to be seen and the actual leader of the national party, Justin Barrett, was a member of Fianna Gael, which is the, the the right-wing party. They grew out of the blue shirts, and they're the most anti-Republican party in the 26 counties. So like their arguments when it comes to the, the national question and calling themselves nationalists and, and patriots, it, it can easily be um, discredited purely by their actions and their, or their inactions over the past 30, 40 years. But over, I guess internationally, the far-right idea is racism. Um, They're more more out in the open and and they're being, um, I suppose, they're being discussed online and and it's given them a bit more confidence. But in Ireland, we've always been proud of the fact that for a long time there hasn't been any kind of anti-immigrant party that any far-right organisations were always um, given no platform. And and I think a Socialist Public in the 1930s said, uh, no quarter. There was a, a quote from one of them when they were had a direct action against um, the blue shirts and no quarter to us uh, in the modern sense just means no platform.
0: So what what else is anti-imperialism island involved in at the moment then?
1: Um, I suppose when we were set up, um, we were involved in a few different uh, campaigns. Our, f- our first campaign was the Arrow Mandate, our Republic campaign, and it was basically um, it was around the time of the anniversary of the first All-Air the first national parliament in Ireland. And we produced the uh, democratic program, which is basically a socialistic document, which um, which uh, promoted and the wealth and the wealth producing processes of the country being in the hands of the people so we wanted to popularize that and, and as part of that campaign what grew out of it was the bring it to their doors campaign which we ran for i think it was about a year just over a year with the uh, group in a uh, fingal and what it was was basically on a given weekend we would go to a, a minister um or a senior politician and um, one of their properties one of their uh, Places And we would have a, a silent picket outside their house, which got huge publicity, huge uh, resentment as well from a lot of the pol- political class and media that like d- these politicians who were making decisions affecting hundreds of thousands of people, uh, affecting children and their welfare and, and their development, that somehow they were um they, they wouldn't have been responsible and that uh, t- basically they um. No one had a right basically to um to bring it back home, bring it back to their doors. And that's why it was called the Bring It To the Doors campaign that um often your people's enemies are uh have a face and they have an address and that people who make these decisions, political actors make these decisions that affect the lives of, of people all over the all over the country. Um there were some of the campaigns as I said, anti fascism is a big plank. Um, of our activism but also we're involved in a a lot of anti-repression campaigns and a lot of people mightn't be aware of this um, in in Britain or in in, uh, Wales but um, we're involved in a campaign called Abolish the Special Criminal Courts and in in the 26 counties as I said there was a counter-revolution and the right have been in in power since in the 1970s a court was established called the Special Criminal Court Um, it's a court that has no jury and there's three judges sitting on it and someone can be convicted, sent to prison for five years on the word of one single cop. So um, th- there's a this, this special criminal court. It was used, introduced for what they call subversive Republicans. Um, and they said it was brought in um, because juries were being intimidated, but that wasn't the case at all. It was, it was brought in because juries were actually um, not convicted enough people that the state wanted the railroad into prison. So they established this non-jury uh, court um, and it's been in operation under um, emergency legislation since the, since the 1970s. Um, and it's it's actually against EU law. Every time the 26 county state uses it, um, the, the, the state gets, gets fined. Um, and as I said, someone can be convicted on the word of one single cop. So this court there just needs to be three strands of evidence for someone to be convicted so one is the belief evidence so a senior cop can say i believe he's a member of an illegal organization and that's taken as fact and another strand is the association so if you associate with someone who was uh, convicted of being a member of an illegal organization that's another strand if you just associate with them if you go down to the pub or go to a protest and you're talking to them um, and then the other part is um it can be something as simple as a book. Some people have been convicted of having a book on Irish history or having some kind of paraphernalia with Republican imagery on it. So we're, we're part of this Abolish the Special Criminal Court campaign, and it's just part of a general anti-repression um, anti-repression campaigns that we're involved in kind of across the country.
0: Such important work drawing attention to this stuff, because it is it is really mind-blowing, This you know the stuff that goes on and the, and the harassment that the Republicans have to face. Paul, is there any anyone you'd like to you know give a shout out to?
1: I'd just like to thank um Desolation Radio I suppose, for giving um, perspective to Socialist Republicanism in and, and in Ireland and also just the same solidarity to Undad and the Socialist Republican project they have gone there.
0: Top man, really appreciate it, honestly. Um thanks so much. Like check out Ant- Imperialism Island, like you know, you've got a big presence on social media on, on Twitter and, and Facebook. What is the name of the, the media collective um, started
1: up? Oh, um, Republic Media.
0: Oh, that's the one, yeah.
1: Yeah, so yeah, yeah, so this it's another project we're involved in with a few other organisations and individuals. And um, Republic Media, just, to, just uh, I suppose it's a yeah a media project to counter the mainstream uh, narrative and stuff.
0: Brilliant, yeah. mate. Thanks so much for coming on. Um, and hopefully you'll be our correspondent in Ireland. So anytime um, we need updates, we'll give you a shout. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. In terms of shout-outs from me, Uh, thank you to Maya Jones for uh, introducing Porok and I back in the day. So thank you for making this possible. Remember guys to follow us on Twitter at Desolation Wales and to subscribe to our Patreon because we need money. But yeah, thank you so much for listening and tune in next time. Bye.
2: Any agreement is to be subjected to a majority at the talks, a majority in the six counties and a majority in the British Parliament. So clearly, a free and independent Ireland is not available absorbed into the British system in Ireland. Uh, British policy in Ireland for hundreds of years has been very clear, and that is coercion and when it suits compromise. Uh, we've had the coercion, now they're engaged in compromise, and they hope to absorb a section of those who have been resisting them into their system. Uh, by bringing back a new storm, by updating it and modernizing it and hoping to make it more acceptable to the world at large. And their plan is to get a section of the nationalist population helping them out in doing that. And that is exactly what the Provisionals are doing at present. They have done what the original Free Staters did in 1922, and what uh, De Valera's people did five years later, and what others did down along the line. They have now found themselves in the enemy's camp, taking part with the enemy and eventually they will be forced to defend the new position. And that means defending it against those who remain constant and who continue the struggle for a united and free Ireland.